0: You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hello, hello. Hey, ladies and gents, welcome back to Accounted For. I'm happy that you're joining me once again. And if you're new, welcome. Welcome to the platform or the podcast, sorry, the podcast. Uh, The branding gurus, quote-unquote, have been talking about catchphrases and the value of having catchphrases for branding purposes, and since many of my listeners, you, know that I am kind of creating this as part of my OMD Ventures platform, I figured, what is a good catchphrase? I don't really have one, but something I considered was the message and just relating it constantly, the message being... The intent behind what I'm doing here with the podcast, which is to hopefully expand your perspectives, which will allow you to question the default option. And hopefully that leads into getting you inspired to action. So I think that's the message I'll try to constantly sneak in throughout the podcast. Just figured I'd update you in case you thought, hey, why is he saying this stuff now? <laughs> so before we hit the episode, I just want to reiterate the podcast is brought to you by OMD Ventures, my platform focused on everything human capital investing. If you don't know what that means, that's a great reason to check out the site where I post out all my weekly contents like the weekly newsletter, the weekly article, and the podcast. I haven't yet integrated the vlog yet, but I will. There's a separate YouTube channel for that. Still working around getting to do that task. And so if you're... If you want to be constantly up to date with the whole weekly content stuff, it's practically daily stuff now, you know, become a subscriber, join the community, there's a subscribe button at omdventures.com, and there's a bunch of links links in the show description below, so just check those out. Okay, and remember to support the podcast by telling a friend that you love about the podcast, and also leave a five-star review on iTunes, that really helps. And honestly, what really helps is it, when you leave an actual review telling me what you like or when you fill out one of the listener surveys because then I actually have something to go off of and it just adds credibility as well. So if you can do that, I'd appreciate it. Now, today's guest is Marlon Rodriguez, the head of product at Flex Day. If you heard Justin Raymond, the founder of Flexday, on episode 19, then you're very familiar with the company. If you haven't, don't worry, don't fret because... This is a podcast unique to Marlon's unique journey, and we do give an overview of the company here as well, so you won't be lost. Marlon's journey really traverses through the world of marketing, business development, and finally product, where he currently is the product manager of Flagstay. But it also kind of touches upon entrepreneurship as well as he had also co-founded a company prior to. And this is all through a decade's worth of experience in Toronto's own startup ecosystem. But we really start earlier in our conversation to actually talk through how he delayed his graduation to explore the accounting world. And that's where I kind of had a kind of kindred spirit emotion with him. (laughs) And then how he went on to one of the most remote regions in Peru to actually operate a hostel for about six months, like actually running the hostel. And the caveat here being he actually didn't know how to speak a word of Spanish. And so it's just, Marlon's a very tall guy, so you know, six foot four or something is my guess tall Indian guy going into Peru and managing a a hostel and this actually became an inflection point for Marlon and it really catapulted him into the startup world where he was able to have this 10-year journey and this whole journey was him actually following his curiosity and embracing the uncertainty and the feeling of really not knowing exactly what he wanted to do. It's a feeling I know all too well, and one I think everyone really experiences in their life, but it's just too afraid to be okay with, and my hope is maybe after hearing Marlon's story, you will change your mind if you're experiencing it, or if you're going through it right now, maybe you'll actually feel comfort in hearing someone else go through it, and that's what I felt when I spoke with him. So I hope my chat with Marlon expands your perspectives, has you question the default and inspires action. So here is my conversation with Marlon Rodriguez. Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. Today on the podcast we have Marlon Rodriguez. Hey Marlon, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Of course, great to see you.
0: And Marlon here is the head of product and growth at Flex Day. And so for some of you diehard listeners, you will know that I had the founder of Flexday, Justin Raymond, on in episode, I think, 19. But for some of you who are not familiar with Flexday, have no fear. Marlon will (laughs) describe what the company does and give you some more details on that. So, Marlon, please take it away.
1: Yeah. So uh, thanks for the opportunity to be here and share a little bit about what we're working on with your audience. Um, So what Flexday is, is a network of workspaces throughout the city at an economical cost for the freelancer and self-employed community. Um, We are able to offer an unheard of cost for workspace because we use restaurants in their downtime. And uh, and by doing that, we can access hospitality spaces that are beautiful and well-appointed and actually conducive to work at a price that starts at $9 per month, right? And so like a single figure price for productive workspace is an unheard of concept. Um, and we're building it here in Toronto. Um, we're about a year and a half old. We've got 25 locations and about 5,000 members. And um, so far, we've been responsible for something like 24,000 productive workdays. Uh, and this is still very much in the early phases, but we are getting some early signal that um, this is a persistent need now. And as we see our economy becoming even more distributed and as knowledge work becomes more well-equipped for that, you know, I think the technology is there, but the policies are catching up. Um, more and more people are going to seek this type of arrangement, places to go outside of the home or coffee shop where they can be productive and work around other people that are also trying to do the same things.
0: Got it. And for full disclosure for the audience, I am also a customer of FlexTaste, so I I might be a little biased in terms of the (laughs) questions I ask or point of views I have, but it's also, I guess, natural that I got attracted to this kind of product just because of how strongly I believe in um, remote working and how the... I think workplace in, in itself is just evolving and it will have to change in the future and so right now in terms of like the flex state users and stuff do you find that it like how, how does it break down are they mostly just more remote workers who are in remote companies or is it do you see more of like traditional kind of companies allowing their employees to kind of slowly test these things out like how does the breakdown work
1: yeah so the primary use cases are people who are freelancers right solo self-employed people they're here in the city um, they're working from home or working from a coffee shop sometimes i see them at the library and of course i work in all these spaces as well outside of the flex network and in the flex network um but those are the people that are are like those are the people that have no solution right now and they tend not to have the budget required to enter into a formal workspace arrangement, right? They might be very early in their freelancing career or they haven't yet checked, cashed that many checks from customers yet. And so it's it's unlikely that they're going to sign up for something, another rent check on the first day of the month. And so that's who's coming to us today, right? People that, that recognize that this is a painful problem and this is an approachable price point. Um, We've got a, a, another group that are, you know, that behave very similarly to the solo self-employed. And these are the people who are fundamentally remote from their companies, right? So their, their office is half an hour, an hour away or in the U.S. somewhere. Or in some cases, these are companies like Zapier that don't have a headquarters. And so all of their staff are working remotely, right? So each person has a sovereignty to pick their location and their hours. Um, but fundamentally, they have some need to be connected to their entire employee base, right? So there's a little bit less sovereignty around that. Um, so that, that's a big segment for us. Um, another one is, uh, is essentially these small teams. I think of them as almost like tribes. You see these people that, you know, they're biking around together or they're sitting together at coffee shops and, and they're moving around coffee shop to coffee shop. And these are people that are, you know, might be collaborators or they might be building a business together. But again, too early to sign up for an office and in fact may actually prefer this sort of more nimble way of finding space that's inspiring for them and it makes sense given the day they're having. And then the group that's like really exciting that's starting to show up right now are these big companies, right? Um, we're noticing just you know recently actually, a, a little spike in this where there are teams that are indiv- like the individual people on teams are signing up and they're kicking the tires and they're trying it and they're expensing it. And then you notice a few more people from the same company sign up right so it's a curious little trend where i mean we recognize how valuable flexibility is and i think both of us have like sought work that allows for that type of arrangement of our lives and there's less and less of a reason that companies need to keep their people in the building right and not maybe maybe one day a week is is important to get everyone on the same page or to to do demos on fridays but Uh, every study I've seen says that employees are actually happier and what better engaged if they get that sort of freedom. And it tends to be like two to three days a week of their own space and time to do what they need to do. Um, And so what's happening is the employees are taking charge and they're saying, hey, this solution is not asking you to spend an arm and a leg. It's super flexible. Um, In fact, it starts to address the concerns of the companies um, around offering a work from home uh, solution. And, and allowing Flex Day to offer their employees a work near home solution, right? I think companies and, and, and um, people that staff big teams are justifiably skeptical that you're gonna be as productive working from home as you might be in the office. And, uh, and there's, there's some reason to believe that, right? So like the average Torontonian has something like 600 square feet for themselves, mm-hmm. And so when you say go work from home, very few of these people actually have their own like closed door office or like a great office chair, right? The ergonomics and, and just sort of the, a place to take a state change and actually be productive. Um, and of course, how many people can actually be productive the whole day and then the second day and the third day of the same week. So what we're saying is like, yeah, okay, that's that, we're skeptical too, you know, I work from home sometimes, but there's a limit to how far I can work from home. What if you work near home in actually a productive workspace that's qualified for productivity among other people who are also there for work? And that's what Flex Day is, right? So we're saying, people come, individual um, people from these companies sign up, kick the tires, and then let their peers know laterally. And then um, after, you know, you see usually like four or five people sign up, then there's a bit of a tipping point, you know, someone from the people operations or VP operations will reach out and say, okay, how do we how do we do this for real? You know, how do we administer this centrally? Um, how do we pay for this all at once? So um, it's curious, but I think that, that for us, that's going to be a really big opportunity as uh, companies realize that they can more easily solve for this this um, employee requirement for location flexibility um, by using something like Flex Day.
0: Yeah, 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 and I think um, it's it's cool how you bring up how you know there's like that tipping point after mm-hmm. employee four or five. And It's kind of similar to I guess you know not they didn't coin it, but it's kind of like how Slack did it, where you have one or two, three people using it, and then it slowly starts spreading at the bottom, and then they eventually tell the higher ups that. We should make this company wide and then that's how the entire corporation like buys into it because there are people like using the product right is that was that the initial like the strategy you had or was it did you try the other way where you first try to go to the company's leader and say hey you should do this for your entire people and let me educate you on why you should let go of all the space time requirements <laughs>
1: yeah i know right um so uh we we've d- done it both ways you know like i've been in in toronto tech and marketing for a better part of a decade now Um, and, and there's just some things that you can like point at a shorthand. So for example, our price point is too low for that to be a scalable solution, right? Reaching out to a company and going through an enterprise sales process will just literally bleed us dry because that's a very slow process and it takes a lot of approvals and there's all kinds of people that want to say no to that. Um, and, and, you know, like the other side of that is like, we have inherently a viral product, right? Like when you're using it and you're talking to somebody and they ask you, Hey, where are you? They might. You might tell them, "Hey, I'm I'm over here," and they're like, "What do you mean you're over here?" I'm like, "Well, I'm at a flex day, right?" Or if somebody's missing from the office, they like, "Where where were you? Where did you go?" And so there's there's something easy to reference and understand there across a company at that lateral level, where um, you can understand that that would be easy for your coworker to understand, right? And for that to be the way that it spreads as opposed to being a top down like um, webinar centric thing, I think we'll we'll do things to equip you know, leaders at the top and, and benefits providers in time. Um, but there's some really good dynamics about how this product works and the network effects inherent in it. That means that it's, um, it, it'll spread laterally, or at least that's a hypothesis, it'll spread laterally. Um, and that will give the business a bit of confidence that that's, a, you know, that's a solution employees want. And, uh, and it's worth pursuing with some proof Independent of us showing up and say, you guys should really try this. Right, mm-hmm. it's a much more powerful message when you say your employees are already using this. Let's just make it easier to do more of what they want, and and by the way, you want this too.
0: And in terms of that network effect actually coming into fruition, like the hypothesis um, actually proving out as yeah, I think this is working. That that validation. How how do you know? Like how how do you have mm-hmm. the certainty? Like as you go through, you know. You know i think case studies go oh yeah like when we look at facebook or something over yeah. this decade they had this trend but right. as as i go through like kind of my own you know, platform and i'm like looking at i try not to look at the monthly user uh, like viewership that much but mm. even when you look at it it's very small and incremental at times mm. and there are points of inflect like quick inflection growth but mm-hmm. even then it makes me wonder is this something that's really happening or mm-hmm. is this just more, you know, like a fluke? Yeah. It's gonna go back down. Like yeah. what 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 do you look at to constantly trying to gauge like try to gauge like, yeah, is this a network effect? Is it happening?
1: Right. Um, so th- at this level, I don't know that we're instrumented in all the ways that we could be instrumented to really pick up those minute signals that the network effects are playing out. But like just to be clear, what I mean by network effects is that, you know, like the definition of network effects is that the next person that uses this product receives more value than the last person by the by virtue of that per, that previous person showing up right mm. and and so um, what happens here is is like that you know t minus first person has done some of the de-risking you know they they proven that this is a real thing they show up with regularity they're animating the space they can describe it in their own words and the um, therefore the other side of it, in our in our case we're running this as a marketplace the partners the restaurant partners fundamentally are open and welcoming to this group of people, right? So like that tipping point um, is best observed by being very present in the network and and having regular conversations with members while we go out and try to instrument some of this stuff. So for example, we instrument by um, adding a referral program, right? makes it really easy for you to share the link with someone else and you both get rewarded when they show up. And so that's a one way for us to check that like people are talking about this. But they of course they don't use it 100% of the time. And so we'll notice like little signal by like clumps of people signing up at the same time from the same email address. Or we have a guest policy, right? So like you can bring a guest in by using credits in our app. And so we'll notice that somebody will bring a guest in and 2 days later that person, you know, the guest will sign up as a real member, like a full member, right? So you're starting to see the manifestation of some of those things, but there's not enough instrumentation to know all the dynamics at play. I think very, you're very much in a case of like the qualitative observations and then going back and see how you can quantitatively measure it and iterating because, I mean, there are a lot of hypotheses at play in our business and uh, and, and they deserve some space for that, but um, the members tell us what they want. And so the the, the our, our hypothesis about network effects um, really is, um, is that this this is um, generally an interesting thing, um, but all of the edges and how that works out and, and what language they use and how long they take until they bring someone back and all of those dynamics, which are really important for a business that's trying to scale, um, are not easily observable at this stage without the type of instrumentation um, that, that really facilitates that. Yeah, I, I can totally
0: imagine how, you know, it is that kind of constant trial and error and that kind of journey that you have to go through. And there is that, it's, it seems that the qualitative part, the kind of gut feel has to be you know, really listened to. Of, yeah, I think we've got to try this out. We have to do right. it. Because you're not going to have you know, millions of data points. Like you are <laughs> It's not like this is Google yeah. or anything. Yeah, you got to use your
1: judgment exactly. in, in part of it, right? Yeah. Like you're, you're always, I mean, as an entrepreneur, I think you're always doing that. Is, there's probably a place for you to academically study it. But then the market is changing. And so like by the time you finish your study, like can you actually use that? to propose a solution um, so you get really comfortable with acting on like you know 60 percent information or even less in some cases but i you know jeff bezos talks a lot about this he's like look if there's like a one in ten chance of you having a thousand times outcome you should probably take that shot right expected value says you should take that shot and of course you're trying to de-risk it and make it like a two in ten or a three in ten but like even amazon which has you know infinite money uh, makes mistakes you know, and so I don't think you ever fully instrument your way through de-risking a, a problem or, or an opportunity. Yeah, I think you will always get comfortable and try to try to, you know, figure out what data exists, qualitative and quantitative to support a decision. Uh, but but there's a, a real need to act and, and actually figure out what's going on. And the only way to really do that is by putting something in front of a customer and just seeing what happens. Mm-hmm. And as as you kind of previously alluded to, you've
0: spent, you know, close to like a decade. In marketing and mm-hmm. startup tech ecosystem, um, but you know your your background started not as a marketer, but you you start you know you studied finance in Waterloo, mm-hmm. and you had that stint at trying to look at the accounting world. Um. When we, pre- when we previously chatted, you spoke about how yeah you you had this idea you wanted to stay a student longer and you tried accounting and then yeah. you realized not not for me. <laughs> what what made you want to stay a student longer? Mm. Like you could have graduated, you could have, you know, you did a finance major and uh, you were in like math in Waterloo. Yeah. Like those are good majors to, you know, go into the working world quickly and start earning money. But yeah. contrary to that, you want to stay a student longer. When I look back, I, I wish I slowed down a little mm. more as well. So I wonder, but I, I realized that afterwards, mm-hmm. what, what made you want to stay a student longer at that point? Like when you're actually mm-hmm. a student then,
1: you know, I, if I, this is like how many years now? Probably 15 years ago, right now, right? Right, 12? Anyway, um, th- there are a lot of a lot of things at play. Um, one of them is that I had a great university career. You know, I, I was involved on campus, and so to me, school was more than just the program I was in. And uh, and so like it it made it easy to be Van Wilder of the math program. Um, that that's sort of like one. Uh, two is I. My my mom's a teacher. And so like education is super important in our business, in our business, in our family. Uh, Two sisters that are, you know, my mom has two master's degrees and teaches like children, right? Like my middle sister's a a family physician. My little sister has a master's. Um, And then there's me and my dad who are just like plain old bachelor carrying uh, (laughs) dudes, outnumbered, outsmarted. Um, but, but that was a reasonable thing to tell my parents is like, I don't know what I'm going to do next, but if I just hang out in school a little longer and do this accounting thing, like it soothes Asian, Asian parents. Um, and so like that sounded like a pretty good course of action, but really what I was doing was buying myself time. And this was a, a, like an argument free way of buying myself more time. Uh, so it's sort of dynamic two, dynamic three is like when you're in universities, um, you're in the, in, the university industrial complex. Right. So like you start to realize that you matter when you count towards certain metrics. And in the case of uh, the math program, at Waterloo, uh, in those days, they make all kinds of claims about your employment rate uh, after graduation and your starting salary and all that stuff. And so essentially I got talked into it a little bit. It was, you know, I had rubber arms, but but I got talked into staying a little longer and essentially just continuing to take courses um, I, it turns out I'd done half of the CA requirements, I, CPA, no, it's, it what's t- it called now? It's the CPA now, but yeah, back then, <laughs> back it, then. it was the Back in yeah, my yeah. day. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was like just an accident, right? Like as part of the finance program, you do like these accite courses or whatever. And so you get half of the, the, the this thing done and they're like, well, if you just stick around for a little longer, you'll be fully done. And then you'll have another option. And by the way, that option is really attractive and it comes with all these trappings. Um, and so I said yes, it, it was it was easy to say yes. Um, and I don't regret it. You know, it, there's a, a lot to be said about being literate about those topics, especially, you know, in, in building any sort of business. Uh, a lot of the accelerators and stuff like that will do crash courses on balance sheets and ratios and just, you know, how to how to be smarter, a smarter thinker about developing value, you know, and uh, understanding investments and strategies around that. So I realized that um at worst, I was gonna be literate about it, and at best, I would do it and be good at it um but you know you know how that story goes here I am <laughs> <laughs>
0: well so for for people who weren't there um who may not know how the story was like what what was it like the was it that you were bad at it, or was mm. it that um uh, it wasn't interesting what was it about that process that gave you enough of um the conviction to say you know what i'm not gonna even bother working as an account to figure it
1: out like this alone was enough for me to go nah i'm good (laughs) well you know so playing back uh what was happening in that period of time is because i stayed on longer i was actually in school for 16 months straight and and i was finishing in december so literally the next act was to go into tax season i was like everything i hear about tax season sounds horrific and i don't understand how to do that after 16 months of school you know like it feels like i need to like just lay out for a bit and it just does not sound like that's what they want me to do um so was kind of one realization was like yeah i don't want to jump into this i think two was um that because i was a don i was around other accounting students part of the time who had actually put some of their hours away right and i realized like i'm gonna start articling at like day one and have 30 more months of this to go right and at that point i think i was like 24 right so already like van wilder and i was gonna be like yeah i think there's that, that movie the intern where you get, like the old guy coming in not that you're old in your 20s you know but
0: but when uh, when you're in your 20s you feel like that right you're like oh man these kids probably started at 22 but i'm gonna go in at
1: 24 well yeah because like i was also in a a five-year universe or five-year high school guy right so like there were kids that were were like 21 graduating from university and i was 24 you know so i'd done a five-year high school thing i'd done a co-op program and then i stayed for a victory lap right so like yeah, there was a huge disparity and like you know in your 30s you, everyone kind of looks the same whatever I've had similar life experiences but like a couple of years difference in your 20s feels like a lot
0: 100 yeah
1: so that that was you know that was um, that, that was another dynamic and I think like the third one that really guided me was that I realized that um, there was no point in doing it just to do it you know and I'd been kind of talked into it and there's a bunch of, bunch of status associated but you're better you're better suited to talk through that stuff it, it sounded nice. But I didn't think that I could be top five at it, you know, and and it became clear like I was I was okay at it I was better at it than I was at math for most of my math career. Um, But I but I just didn't care enough, you know, and like it was like these massive textbooks that really made that clear to me where I'm like, I mean, on paper, I should fucking understand this, you know, like this is this should be easy to to get through. But um, that stuff shredded me. And I was like, you know, I just don't know that I'm going to be good at this because I don't care enough to be good at this. And so um, that's been a pretty important guiding principle for me is I'm constantly looking for places that I can be truly like top three, top five at something mm. to be referenceable, to be um, known for whatever that skill is, but to, to be like known for it. Um, and I just didn't th- think I was going to be that good an accountant to be known for it. You know, I, I knew that I would if I did it, it would basically be a countdown to... Writing whatever that exam was, um, and then getting your thirty months, and then just like disappearing into the world. I don't know that that's a good way to live life, and 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 or, or to develop any sort of expertise. To this idea of um, to be the best, to be known for
0: top three, top five, was that something that was constantly kind of taught at home when you were growing up? Like mm. when when do you remember when you started like feeling like that?
1: Um, mm. I don't, I don't think so. You know, I think, I think we were as a family, like, you know, my parents wanted us to do well and to try really hard. Um, but it was never like specifically about rank order about anything. I think what it came down to was that I realized the dynamics of, um, how you're sought out, you know? And, And so like one of the things that I realized was like in high school and in university, um, I did many more things outside of the classroom than I did in the classroom, right? And I kind of would get bored with the school stuff. Like, okay, cool, I'll do some school, but like I'm really here for track. I'm really here to be a Don. I'm really here to like contribute in all these other ways. And so you start to realize that the way you access those networks and get into different conversations, including like in my case, I went to Peru after you know my 16 months of school, like all that came out because somebody thought of me and thought that I was going to be relatively good at something and either like tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, what about this or have you considered this? Or when I came and approached them, I was easily referenceable about what I was claiming to do. And those dynamics created a sort of a slipstream in my career um, that meant that I, I wasn't like, you know, making these kind of mechanical claims, right? Or like trying to structure things in a resume. I wasn't trying to be persuasive through these like inert objects. I was actually like good at something. I was known to be good at it. And it created a type of weightlessness about the types of things I wanted to do. And so I realized like that was a really powerful dynamic at play that if you can, if people agree that you are that good at something, um, it was going to be hard to be ignored in their books about this. Um, But um, I think there was some like very early signal in high school and university that said that you know, aside from all of, all of the you know, university industrial complex, that says like ace everything. I realized like I get relatively good co-op jobs compared to my classmates who had better transcripts. Like, why is that? You know, apparently some things I was able to network my way through certain things or, or understand the dynamics of a conversation um, with an interviewer. Right. And then they could reference me. I remember my last co-op term, I interviewed with a, with a, with two different teams at the same company and, one of the hiring managers called me up and said, Hey, look, I have the other guy you interviewed with on the phone. And uh, we both want you to come. We both want you to join our teams, <laughs> but you can't join both teams. And I spent the, the hour interviewing them about why I should join their teams. Right. So like th- there were these little signals along the way that, that actually um, being objectively like test good at something was, was worth something. But in fact, there was this whole other world, the world of soft skills and and persuasion and all these, all these things. They don't really they don't really teach you in math school um, that were more powerful, more powerful influences in my uh, opportunity set.
0: And do you find that when, when you're kind of looking back at it or even when you're experiencing doing these things that there is a kind of like, effortlessness associated with it where it's not like it's not a grind, it's more natural?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm like really terrible at doing things I don't want to do. (laughs) I I don't like to pretend that I want to do it. Um, Of course, everyone has to do things, you know, some things that they don't want to do. But I don't know you. I don't want to live a life where that's what I'm doing. Um, And so I think there's something beautiful and and reinvigorating and energizing about tapping into some degree of purpose and feeling like you're doing something that you are well suited to do. Um, there are a lot of us, I remember in high school and university, there were a lot of people that would be, you know, really hard on themselves about something they weren't succeeding at. But as it turned out, they didn't actually care at succeeding at it either. And that's really shitty. (laughs) It's like, this person doesn't like me. But it's not the real me. It's like a puppet version of me that I created for the circumstance. And even that's not working. You know, like, well, that just sounds like a waste of time and energy, you know. Um, And so yeah, I think I think I always like asserted my way around that and said, like, let me, let me, you know, I think you're hearing this a little bit in my story. Like, yeah, let me do school let me do well enough at school that people let me to stay here. But also let me do a bunch of the other things that I think are valuable to me and maybe valuable to other people. And um and, and that comes from like a, a core belief that um that it mattered. And I think I had, I had really smart people around me and and uh, really strong mentors along the way to to like double check me on that. Um but that you know, I I really have no regrets about the path I took, even though I'm a bit of a black sheep, probably in my graduating class to like go, you know, straight into a a startup versus like being an analyst or being a CFA or whatever, whatever else counts on their scoreboard. Um, I, um, I, I, I'm happy with what I'm doing (laughs) and I'm energized and the people I meet are interesting. And like that to me is, is, those are the the things I measure about um, like, how happy and successful my life has been to this point is like those elements more so than like, you know, um, specific jobs or, or designations or things like that. I it sort of, I, I kind of broke out of a thing that I didn't really want to do. I guess a very, very selfish way to do that.
0: No, but I think it's, it's, it's amazing how, you know, it seems like you had this ability to kind of look at your kind of internal scorecard Mm. Um, more than rely on the external scorecard, scorecard which I think mm. I think it's a journey. Like, most people, I think, when you start out, you know, as you seek the approval of others and you mm. start start with the external scorecard as social animals. And then I think as you go through this journey of life, you eventually, ideally, learn to listen more to the internal scorecard. And for me, that took time as well. Like, I mm. went through the whole going to the big four, being an accountant and all that. And then, like, my first, like, started inflection points were when I started being honest and, mm-hmm. like, telling my manager oh yeah, I have no idea what I'm doing. I actually have no idea. I copied. It's powerful. I copied everything from last year right. and I had no idea what I was doing. And the manager loved it. He was saying, yeah. I've never heard such an honest response right. to the work you did and you should never write that down. But right. I appreciate <laughs> that. Let's just reword it right. so it's acceptable at corporate. But right. yeah, and I think that's when it clicked for me that yeah, honesty is actually way more important than trying to like quote unquote fake it till you make it. And you talked about how, you know, yeah, like you you didn't take the CFA path, like your friends would go into like an at like a bank or whatever, and you started out straight into startups. Mm. And you were at like Polar Mobile in the beginning, and mm. then after that, you went to growth. five You were at are you um, you're in growth at 500 px, mm-hmm. and then you went to like two retail to do marketing. Mm. And then you were at, I don't know how to pronounce it, to Mac? Yeah. De- DMAC, DMAC, yeah, DMAC, DMAC, okay, yeah. DMAC, and you're doing marketing House there, yep yeah. and then founded your own startup yeah. and then you were at Flexis. you've been down this track of startups mm-hmm. but what's not in your resume is that trip to peru where you mm. were running a hostel mm-hmm. and so it makes me wonder like what what was it about that time in peru um mm. that got you kind of catered towards the startup path from the get-go like did peru have some kind of a startup community there while you while you were there where you're thinking this is interesting this this is what i'm gonna do after i'm done with this peru thing Oh, like, what, my God. What, yeah. what about that period um, operating a hostel in Peru really like yeah. you down this path?
1: Well, I think if you put all of that, all of those facts in a time series, like there's no way to prepare for any of those things. Right. Yeah. Like I didn't I didn't even know I was going to Peru until two months before I went to Peru. Right. Um, the Peru thing was like, it, you know, it, it's, it, it was all built out of a type of tension or frustration. You know, like I'd, I'd been working for five years on plan A, which was to finish with a math degree, using a co-op option to figure out what job I would be relevant for. And at the end of that process, I was like, mm, okay, cool. There's some cool jobs here. Um, I can't see dedicating my three to five years or whatever they tell you to doing this. And so I made plan B on the fly, which is like, okay, I'll try to be an accountant. And I did that for a while. And at the end of that process, I was like, oh, I don't think I'm going to be good at that either. And... I don't really have a plan C, um, and I knew that I wouldn't uh, because I'm not really good at pretending when I don't want to do something. I wasn't going to be good at like forcing my way through plan A or plan B, though my life circumstances at that time and and my support system allowed me to to uh, forego those options. So plan C was literally like, look, I always knew I was going to travel at some point, point. and. I just started talking to people on campus and I'm like, I'm lost, you know, I'm 24. I don't I don't want to do like another year of school to figure it out. Like I have nothing else that I really want to do here. And so Peru just happened. You know, Peru is a friend of mine um, who introduced me to a, a person from his hometown who had been traveling to Peru for a number of years. And this is back in like, you know, this is 2008, right? So it's more than 10 years ago now. Um, and... it it was an interesting conversation because like this is back in the day before Facebook where you could like establish someone's profile and just creep them and stuff, right? Like I had a conversation, that person had a conversation on my behalf and that person had a conversation with, on my behalf with someone in Peru who managed a hostel, who owned a hostel. And through those trusted connections, that person said, you know what? If that person wants to come because I trust all of the people that have referred me to him, um, we'll make place for him. And I talked to that person twice over MSN and uh, I told my parents about know, my harebrained idea and they told me I was crazy, um, but I kept on it. And, you know, my parents are great um, from that perspective and from many perspectives, but from that perspective, they told me I was crazy and then supported me wholeheartedly. Right. My dad bought my ticket. My mom took the day off of school. I was a teacher. Right. So my mom took the day off school to sit with me at the airport while she's telling me not to go because she's like, you're just going to get, you know, malaria and die in the Amazon. Right. Um, and it was not, I couldn't tell her that that wasn't going to happen because I'd never been to South America. None of my family had. Um, I didn't speak any Spanish and I didn't know who this guy was. Like his face wasn't on MSN. Um, but it was probably the most important thing I have done in my life um, to have taken that risk. Because what it did for me was to really like take myself out of all of these industrial complexes we all belong to and the model of thinking here that keeps us on these sort of narrow beaten paths that, that have inherent value to the people that preserve the paths, right? And you go to a place where like nobody cares who you are. No one gives a fuck about what degrees you have. They're just looking at you and taking you in as who you are. And so I was in this tiny village in the mountains of Peru in a place called Oliente Tambo which is the last train stop before Machu Picchu. And, you know, everyone that goes to Peru basically goes to Machu Picchu. So it was, it was like a little town, a few thousand people, um, not, not, you know, no startup community, um, really terrible cell phone connections, no smartphone. I didn't pack a laptop. So like kind of, you know, stripped of all of these, like these, this armor we all have about, you know, staying connected and and the status bearing things we use to, to traverse the world we live in here, including language, right? Like I don't know the language. So like, you just kind of have to look at me and trust me that I'm here and I'm not a bad actor. It's also over six feet tall and the indigenous people in the mountains are not six feet tall. So they're kind of like this guy again, you know, it was like watching Game of Thrones and the giants coming through. Um, and so it was, you know, for me, it was, it was such an important experience because all of these things, all of these inklings I had had that the soft skill part of my identity was actually valuable came to bear. Right. Like I could keep a simple ledger to run a hostel, but no one cared that I could do financial auditing and taxation. It didn't matter. Right. Um, It mattered that I could be honest and authentic with the guests that we had. Right. Build trust with each of the vendors that we used. Um, We had somebody that was helping us to keep the hostel clean. And so building a relationship with him and understanding his life story and supporting him. And then just starting to become a member of the community right so because you're in the hostile world yeah I, I fundamentally believe that there are hotel people and hostile people and hotel people like to be sequestered and indoors and they want their pool and all that stuff and hostile people are all like high fives and back slaps and they're they want to share and that's true also of hostile owners with other hostile owners so if somebody has a need they'll come and ask you right and little needs like hey can you can you like you know we're overflowing can you help this person or like hey, I know that you're from Canada and this person's also from Canada. Like, can you make this person feel more welcome? Can you help this person understand their travel plans because they don't speak any Spanish and you speak a little bit. Um, And so, um, you know, that whole journey was so important to help to prioritize what I and what everyone else calls soft skills. And also it was like this moment where you're like, well, the worst thing that happens is that I get killed, uh, confirming my mother's (laughs) worst... um, uh, worst vision of this trip. And, and, and in fact, like after month one, when it felt like, Oh, I'm like, where am I right now? I don't, I'm like kind of feeling isolated at the end of it it was all hugs and and backslaps. Right. And like saying bye to the guy that I ate chicken from like at least once a week. And there were a bunch of tourists that had been there the same length of time and like the bread lady, the meat lady, you know, and like it, it was, it was such a beautiful experience. And in fact, I didn't, I didn't die. So I, I wondered you know, I think Elon Musk talks a little bit about this. He's like, usually when you take a risk, you you kind of, you know, you think the worst case scenario. Um, and for us, our, our brains are, are simple. You know, our, our, we have like this mouse trap in our brains and, and it's not sophisticated. It just worries. And then it thinks worry equals death or anxiety equals death. And we our, our body goes into that like self-preservation mode. But I'm like, if I went all the way to this country where no one knew me and I didn't know the language and I did okay, you know, I ran this thing and... Uh, I got to make some friends and I learned about myself, then what could I do in my home country speaking the language natively where people actually recognize the things that I've worked on for the past 24 years? And, and so for me, that was the big inflection point, right? I think I might've gone down the professional route and sought more of the designation world uh, because also like I, I got it um, and there are were, there were a lot of good reasons for going down that road. Um, but when I came back, I basically said like, what's the most risky thing I can do because I'm almost certain it won't kill me. And that's when I joined Polar. And I joined like very early on. They were just, I think they were just cashing their seat check-in. And uh, and that startup journey started then. Uh, and it would not have started had I not taking, taken the risk um, of, of going away and um, doing something a bit atypical at that point in my life.
0: Wow. And h- how long were you in Peru for?
1: I was there for a total of six months. It's about about a month traveling through Bolivia. Uh, highly recommend both countries. Beautiful, you know, just Packed with superlatives, both of them, um, but yeah, six months total.
0: Oh, wow. and was that a intentional decision to decide? I think I'm gonna, I'm ready to go back to the Western world, um, or was it <laughs> kind of more? Like, yeah, it was like a contractual thing. You're like, okay, like it's up. And did you want to stay longer then?
1: Yeah, I think everyone is attracted. Is like what I found on the road was that the people that are are long term travelers for like more than a month. Um, there's some of them that are, you know, they say like, not all who are wandering are lost. There's some people that are doing that type of travel very much on their own. And then there's some people that just can't go anywhere else. You know, like they belong to the world now. Um, Their home is no longer their home Um, or their circumstances that keep them out there. I realized I was probably in group one. Um, I had the option of going back. Um, but, but really the guiding contract there was that my parents said, see you in six months, <laughs> okay. like we're willing to support you to this extent, but then you, we have to know that you're coming back because, you know, like that's, that's how we will support this. Um, I'm the eldest in my family too. So like, you know, there's a bit of, uh, I'm, I'm sure there's a bit of anxiety of, um, of me being out in the world at that early stage, uh, two sisters, you know, still going through school and stuff like that. So the six months was really like a contract with my parents. Um, to come back and and reasonably at the end of those six months I was I was like ready to come back you know there was some beautiful things happening there there's still I still have friends I have one guy that actually lives um, half his year he lives half his year in Vermont and the other half his year there and he came when I got there right Um, so you can very much like make a life in in anywhere in the world really and I would say like that part of the world is very beautiful um, and very welcoming Um, but my six months were up and I was ready to like try something else
0: gotcha yeah. yeah and i think at, at that period um without a laptop it's honestly it's you're, you're as close to being like off the grid as like i think people now could even like think about
1: of like totally
0: oh yeah like what what do you mean there's like no google maps and like totally. google Translate is not like handy all the time like this totally. no laptop
1: digital detox like by necessity 100
0: yeah yeah that's amazing um and and so you go into the startup world hmm. why marketing and you know why like business development like Mm because those are the roles that you did when you're at polar mobile Mm -hmm. but you come from like a finance background you did accounting Mm but you realize that you're not going to be the top that and (laughs) is that is that the pivot into was that the reason why Mm -hmm. you went into marketing and business development like what was it
1: yeah you know so like all of the titles are lagging indicators of what i did you know i think that's been true of like my entire career It's like when you're in a small company you're like just trying to solve a problem and the the title is in a bigger, you know, like the biggest company I've worked in since leaving school was like a hundred people. And so in those comp, in that type of company, you need to have a title that looks right on the org chart so that people know who should hang out with whom and what kind of, you know, rights and responsibilities you have, like are you hiring and all that stuff. In a small company, you're like, just, just do some shit, <laughs> like be useful this week, try to be more useful next week, um, help other people be good. It comes down to that. Um, and then the title part of that is like what will facilitate, what will allow you to facilitate the right conversations with those customers, or um, uh, with um, partners that you're trying to develop uh, relationships with. Right? Those people want to know where in the organization you are. For example, are you a director or are you a VP? Like it's going to be abnormal if like somebody's trying to form a partnership, but they look like they're like the customer experience person. Like, eh, I don't know if you're the right person. Like, do you actually have a partnerships person? So uh, I always went and like constructed the title that made sense. Yeah. Um, and a Polar, Polar like a, Polar still around by the way. Um, they're in a different business now, but uh, all these years later, um, they were such an interesting place because, um, we were building mobile apps for media brands and, and in many cases building the first mobile app that any of these media brands ever had. And so we didn't know, I mean, no one knew how to build a mobile app and no one knew how to serve oh, wow. these customers. Um, and so we were constantly asking ourselves the question of like, what do we need to do now? You know, what do we need as a business to business organization? What problems need solving? And I love that type of space. Like I, I you know, I love the unstructured to structured problem. Um, I'm not a fan of the structured to superstructured problem, the operational problem. Um, and that, I mean, it took a while for me to become self-aware that that's actually what I seek. But the the roles in those early years were all about um, picking a problem, trying to solve it, and then wearing the right badge so that you could have the right conversations out of the office. Uh, And then uh, essentially, all the other titles since then have been some function of that. Right. And so,
0: like you've you've worked in you know like three to four different startups, Mm -hmm. and I think after Polar, I was looking through kind of the, the tenure you've had in each. Company afterwards, mm-hmm. and they're usually under two years, and yeah. you're constantly moving around. Yeah, is there? Do you have some kind of like framework or mental model to help mm-hmm. you make these decisions of, you know, when to find a new opportunity, and mm-hmm. if you do find an opportunity, like, whether how do you know like this is the kind of opportunity that you're looking
1: for? Hmm. Yeah. So I, I don't know that I've been so deliberate about that. Um. I think I think I've gotten smarter about that, and and hopefully I'm still getting smarter about that and how to evaluate. Um, opportunities Um, but really I I think like that track record is all about I think what that track record say to you is is that I wanted to try different things right and so like the meta of that record is that um, I got to try a b2b company a b2c company Uh, I got to try being uh, the marketing lead in an agency I did something at one person where I co-founded something. I did something where I led uh, a team in a 100 person company. And so I typically, I just wanted to like experience everything, right? Like, ugh, I don't know. I, I don't I don't have like anything on paper that says I should do one thing and then climb that ladder. There's no ladder for this. I'm curious about these topics. I'm curious about, curious about these types of organizations. And the only way to truly know how that works and how I can be useful is to go try something. And so, really, all of those opportunities were, were places where um, someone in the leadership thought this would be an interesting experiment to try. Uh, in almost all of those places, I was the first marketer through the door. So I'd come in with a different perspective and say, "Look, you know, you know, I don't, I'm not religious about the term marketing, but have you have you suffered these problems? You know, have you tried to do certain things around growth? Have you tried to systemize what you're doing? Have you?" Um, answered certain core questions about what business you're in and who you're in business for. Um, and those conversations typically led to the structuring of a role. So it wasn't like I was replacing someone. I was actually creating the role. Um, and it, you know that of course, on their side, they would they would have had some self-awareness too. you know, here's what type of business. and um, here's here's what we're ready to invest in. Um, but that's been the journey for me. It's like iterating to figure out how to be useful because, I didn't, like leaving school, I didn't know what I was trying to be. And reasonably, marketing was an interesting problem because there's a lot of math underlying math marketing. You know, and there's a lot of need for developing systems. And then it's, it's beautiful because it, you also get into like the art world, right? You're talking about persuasion at scale. And so persuasion is every little thing from the colors to the, to the name of the company, uh, to the tone of voice and what type of media you put out, where you associate. And that full painting of the picture um, and marketing gets to do all of that, which I found so beautiful, you know, like it wasn't this rote thing that sat in a spreadsheet and it wasn't so high flying as to be con- completely conceptual. You're constantly oscillating between the left and right brain. And it just happens that that's what they call marketing, you know. And so that, that's how kind of 10 years go by really quickly. It's like, okay, you solve another problem, another problem. And now, like, I, I wanted to be more deliberate about this next period. And, and, you know, what I'm interested in is about these customer development type problems which is in the marketing realm. I think most people think about them as, as product management, product development stuff. Um, and cool, that, that, that's a cool title too. And of course, like the title you use at the beginning of the podcast is like, ah, that's for convenience for us to help organize and help um, people external to our business understand what part of the problem I'm focused on. Um, but the mental model around the first 10 years was not really a model at all, other than like a commitment to try different things. Um, These next 10 years, I hope to be much more focused on the narrower subset of problems related to early customer development um, and to make something from nothing. You know, I think it's such an interesting process and such an interesting opportunity to find a problem and to work with a group of people to to manifest something we all think should exist in this world to make it better in some way. Um, And whatever title that takes, I'll wear it. (laughs) But as long as I get to solve that problem, I'm happy. Do you think that you
0: were able to realize that that was uh, the specific problem that you wanted to focus on from mm. your experience
1: co-founding a company? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would say like, you know, I, I wouldn't call myself an entrepreneur or founder or any of these types of things. I know that there's like a bit of a perversion in using those terms, um, movies named after and all this kind of nonsense. Um, but fundamentally, I think everyone should just take the risk. Just do something, do, do a thing, do a, make a blog um, you know, write a few things that you've already been saying to other people, just write it down or like um, see about running like an event. Like everyone just needs to own their own outcome at some point to really confront who they are and what their limitations are. Um, and so that process of becoming, you know, in quotes, founder and, and this, uh, in this little project that we, we worked on at, at um, an AI incubator um, was was really half about exploring an idea and becoming smarter about early customer development like really manifesting things between zero to one. And the other part was really becoming self-aware about myself and my own capabilities, my own blind spots and figuring out how to align with another human being that was also going to stare into the abyss with me. you know and I don't think that process like that process doesn't happen until you're actually in it and you actually have to do it. And so, um, so yeah, totally like that process made me realize like, I want to be really good at something. And here are the types of problems that I'm well suited to solving. And um, here's the the degree to which I want to own the, um, the problem so that I can seek a solution for it. So, um, so yeah, that that was definitely in that period that I was playing this sort of founder role. And then you get into like all kinds of other little topics when you realize that, um there's there's a lot that goes on around you that can help or harm your degrees of success right like aligning with the right partners and investors and and a good co-founder and all that type of stuff um, so you become really aware in a business whether you're on the right track or not um, and it comes down to things that are not easily quantifiable up front right There's are judgment calls um there's a bit of pattern recognition to it there's a, there's a lot of self-awareness in it so
0: yeah sorry um Given given the current time, I just wanted to ask. Like, I know you're sure. supposed to call Justin. Is <laughs> yeah. it okay if you call him a little, yeah, a little I'll, later? Yeah, I'll like, call him in a
1: couple minutes. He knows that we're spending time together. today. Oh, okay, yep. okay, cool.
0: Yeah, I was just actually emailing Justin yesterday too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so this kind of journey of self awareness that you went to, you told you talked about how when you were tw- you were 24, mm-hmm. you felt lost in school, and you and you had help you had help from friends and your network to actually go to Peru and have that inflection point so now after 10 years of you know going on a journey to constantly channel that curiosity to test different things out, do you feel you're not lost anymore or is it more like you still feel somewhat lost it's just maybe um you see a little more light at the end of the tunnel or something mm. like how would you how, how would you describe like the the feeling now
1: mm. um I think I think if a couple of things have happened um that that helped me to feel a little bit more whole in myself. Uh, I think one of the things is just maturity, right? Like I'm 35 years old, so my brain works differently. I've got different hormones coursing through me. Um, I've seen more things um, over the past decade that helps me to understand really kind of how the world works and how I fit into it. And so I think I found people and places and purpose that gives me a better rooting to make me feel centered, even when things are going on around, right? You can't control all the circumstances around you. But like that centeredness comes a little bit from experience and just aging and maturity. Uh, I think another part of it is um, finding centeredness through some sort of mindfulness practice. You know, this comes up left, right and center nowadays. I think it's gonna be more and more important, especially as machines are breaking in our brains. Um, But meditation has been really interesting to me, an interesting process because it's indescribable. It's like one of those things you can't You can't think yourself into being. There's just being. And that doesn't mean anything to anyone until you're actually in that state. Um, So meditation and yoga and practices around that that sort of help help me to separate the external world and the internal world and make sure I'm replenishing the internal world to keep stillness when the external world is ambiguous and constantly in change um, allows me a type of footing that, creates a type of internal peace that that is harder to disturb. When I didn't have that internal place, whatever the world threw at me or whatever whim it had became, you know, like I I was being I was being thrashed about. That's what it felt like. And I was trying to grip onto something to feel centered, and I realized that there's a there's a better way, right? There's a way to do this for yourself intrinsically that like, allows you to keep that internal peace. Um, and so committing to those practices has been really critical and, and being around people that are, are treating it with that sort of priority has been really important. I like guess that's one of the things that I think is very true of our team at Flex Day is we have some really interesting self-aware people that actually are independently meditators and take spiritual practice seriously, not just, you know, religious spiritual practice, which might be part of, a, you know, your family or culture, but actually understanding that there is a consciousness in each of us that is accessible and can be um, developed. Um, that that I think is just an important part of being a human being, but it's been really important in the type of work I like, which is, you know, constantly in flux. Um, and and uh, I recognize that I steer myself into it. So this is this is like developing my own ballast so that I don't get tipped in every storm because I want to be in stormwater. You know, I want to develop something new.
0: Yeah, I think that's, for me, it's I guess it's reassuring to hear that um, just because my, my first four into meditation was because I have, um, well, I don't know if it's past tense or not, but I had an anger problem before mm. and like mm. I was actually diagnosed with it when I was young and so I've mm. always had it. And so I had meditation to actually get over it. And so that's been actually really helpful. And so I stopped, but it continues in the corporate world and mm-hmm. it's going well. And then now I'm in this, you know, I've been doing this, whatever this is now. Like, I I, sh- I don't like calling myself a founder either or, like, mm. an entrepreneur. I feel really, I don't feel like I really fit that kind of definition of, like, yeah. I'm not trying to make a billion-dollar company right. or anything, um, but I guess I'm an entrepreneur. I I founded this thing, this platform, of right. mine, and I've been doing this for a year, and, yeah, like, it's this realization, like, it's kind of like you're a black sheep, you're a black sheep amongst mm-hmm. all your friends, and... Mm-hmm constantly felt lost and then i was like maybe i'm not lost maybe i'm just here like i'm just in a Mm. place in the wilderness and but meditation has been the thing i've actually gone back to now to Mm -hmm. actually try to feel still Mm -hmm. when everything's actually just going in circles around it just feels so much faster now now that i'm just not in that corporate world and it just feels so much faster now and Mm -hmm. i think yeah it's that kind of mindfulness practice is essential um so I'm obviously more in the earlier stages of trying to f- constantly figure this out. But, mm. yeah, it's, it's reassuring
1: to hear <laughs> that it's been working for you. It's, it's such an interesting process because, like, especially when you go through, like, an accounting background or math or whatever, whatever, like, these, these structured programs are, you realize that there are types of knowledge that are teachable, right? You can read textbooks and hear from people and just get smarter just by, you know, reading something somebody said or, or, or working with them. Um, but this type of internal knowledge is only available through personal practice. And that's very different from how we're taught to learn, right? And, and what has rewarded us in our lives, right? Going to school, going through, through these sort of external programs and processes. Um, and so I, I, I think it's even more important for people that live that life to find the internal practice um, and to find that stillness and to discover that there's a different type of knowledge possible. Um, it's hard to describe, which is why it's hard to explain.
0: Yeah, like I, I've, been, I've been trying to tell friends, like it's kind of like you're on. It's like the Matrix in a sense, like where I felt the whole time, even though I'm going from the, like consulting to like accounting to consulting to like hedge fund. It's just it's all this institutionalized world that you're mm-hmm. inside, and then it's like when you went to Peru and you had like your whole huge digital detox. Mm-hmm. Mine wasn't that extreme, but it it still kind of feels like you're on the other side. Now you can you see this kind of concrete institutionalized world, and yours is just filled with trees and shrubs and nothing else. But it's only when you kind of cross that bridge, and it takes time to actually try to deinstitutionalize yourself and kind of get all the toxins out. Yeah, like that's how like I like I. I try to narrate it to my friends. Yeah, some you, you, get it, some don't.
1: You're deprogramming. You, yeah, you are exactly. You are doing your own deprogramming to yeah, realize yeah. that there is a human consciousness and a human nature in you that is inherent in everyone else. And the sooner you can recognize that in yourself, the sooner you can find that in other people. And that's, that's a true commonality in all of us, mm-hmm. regardless of background. So we strip away all that externality. We can find a way to work with people and to be compassionate and to be whole. Um, without being reliant on these external objects, which, which, by the way, you quickly find out don't belong to you mm-hmm. and, and uh, don't necessarily carry the same status as you might have thought it would, mm-hmm. right? And that, that can be really destructive for some people. Um, but the, your thing, your consciousness, your recognition of, of the stillness available to you is yours forever. It's unassailable. And so like it's, it's one of those few things that you can actually develop and protect for your entire lifetime and becomes like this sort of ground spring of of um peace and energy regardless of what happens in your life in personal relationships and and work or whatever else yeah so it's beautiful
0: and it's like <laughs> Every conversation I have with you, it's great because we, we go like pretty philosophical. Like the first time, we went into really deep into family, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, like, <that's> right. genocides. <laughs> um, and I know you know Justin's probably waiting for you as well. So, in as we kind of hit the final legs of our mm-hmm. interview, I'll um, I want to ask you some closing questions. Mm-hmm. And one particular one is, this, as someone who is very self-aware, this this is a question you might have asked yourself already. But so if if we kind of look back now, we could pick the 20-year-old Marlon or the 24-year-old who was still lost. Mm -hmm. And if that Marlon were to look at where you are now, doing what you're doing at Flex Day, the career you've had, what do you think the emotional reaction would be to Mm. where you are now?
1: You know, I I think... um, I I think 24-year-old Marlon would be pretty happy with this. You know, I think that there would be uh, it would be hard to recognize it because like this work and these jobs, this industry was not really, you know, in that realm. So there's no, no possibility to say like, oh yeah, maybe I'll end up over there. I've ended up in a place that I never thought existed. You know, I never knew existed. And I think that's going to be true of, of most of the people that are in school right now, right? Like at some point in their career, they're going to be in like uncharted waters. And then you have to go back to first principles and understand like what is possible here and what's going to come next. Um, but I, I think, I think the key part for me that I think um, drives a lot of my fulfillment is that when I detached myself in in some ways from the um, the university-industrial complex and some of the more beaten paths of my peers and and uh, and sort of the guidance of some of my early mentors. Um, I basically started betting back on myself to find things that were going to be fulfilling and sustainable and I found a little bit of it, you know, I don't think that I'm done, but I think, I think that the risk in taking that path has been rewarded. Um, Who knows what the final outcome is and, you know, we're working on different stuff and maybe it blows up or maybe it doesn't, or maybe you get to work on a long time or maybe it doesn't, but Inherently, I feel fulfilled in the types of work I do and the problems I work on and the people I'm around. And like, there's really no other intrinsic, um, th- there's no other rewards that are, are really that m- more important than that, right? Feeling like you're actually like doing something of value in the ways that it, it, um, Tickles your pleasure centers, right, and, and for, you know reinvigorates you and educates you and energizes you, or at least for me, right? Like I, I hate to live a beautiful downtown existence and and be around some really amazing people, um, and those are the trappings of it. But at the end of the day, to be able to to have you know a sense of purpose and uh, control over calendar and great human relationships, I think is I think the most important thing and uh, is much more available to us than we think, you know, because we, we sort of second all of that stuff into the externalities of designations and companies and um, salaries and cars and all those other things mean, it's an endless list of things on the, um, on the hedonic treadmill. Um, there's only a few things that actually mattered.
0: Yeah. 100%. 100%. And is there anything we didn't cover today that you kind of wish we spoke about, or you wanted to kind of share as like a message? my listeners
1: um wow we have all these like huge story arcs. i actually love to play the playback of how this one went, but um no no man I, I appreciate what you're doing you know like i think um i i tried to be you know one of the things that my one of my favorite things about being a don and being a big brother and and being actually like a big brother in the real world but actually it was part of the big brothers big sisters program is that i wish somebody would just have whispered something a little earlier to me to give me some perspective and so um, I hope, like, my path is is super winding and and I wouldn't really try to follow any of it. <laughs> that little town in Peru might not be so little anymore, for example.
0: Someone might go to a hostel in Bolivia. <laughs>
1: That's right. I'll tell you, it's a great place to go to Bolivia if you're going. But um, what, what's interesting, you know, there was this quote. Um, I hope they don't butcher it, but um, it says when you hear something interesting, when you, when you hear something wise, um, don't seek to just replicate the steps that that person took to arrive at that wisdom, but seek what they sought, right? And sometimes we we hear this advice from people a little further ahead of us and we just try to follow in their footsteps and that's just not gonna be a successful thing. Because as you're hearing in my story, there's so many little influences along the way and many I've forgotten that had led me there. And maybe, they, maybe it was a function of the times I lived in and uh, the person I was, right? Uh, the environment that we, that, that, um, that was around me in those in those places Um, but i think what what's more interesting what might be more valuable to someone listening to this um, earlier in their career is to make the commitment to finding out where their fulfillment comes from and to delineate between the externalities the things that you know most get celebrated in, in a society like ours and what's actually uh unassailable immutable in all of us and see how to map to that because anything you do that comes from that place will be um, fulfilling and reinvigorating and will actually make the people around you light up and make yourself light up. And it's just a more beautiful existence.
0: Perfect. That's a great way to end our uh, conversation, I think. Marlon, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Dan. That was my first one. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> thanks so much. For yeah, I'm,
0: ha- I'm happy you had a lot of fun. And thank you. And to our guests, we'll see you next week. so thanks for listening to the podcast if you enjoyed what you heard please check out other episodes and don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date for the future episodes also I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes, Google Play or Stitcher whichever is applicable to you to see past episodes you can go to oldmandan.com slash podcasts also you can sign up to my weekly newsletter on my blog oldmandan.com newsletter you can stay up to date with future podcast episodes that way, and included in the newsletter are my book reviews I write, my weekly article in the related to the domain of self-development systems, as well as seven things I learned throughout the week on being healthy, wealthy, and wise. Finally, special thanks to icons8.com for allowing me to use your music, Tiny People, on the podcast. Great. I will see you all next time. Take care.